Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm your host, Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Today we are joined again by Philip McLemore. We've had Philip on the show before to talk about Hinduism, or at least about Latter-day Saintism with a Hindu perspective or from a Hindu perspective or something like that. I'll let uh, I'll let Phil give his own version of that. We talked about Jesus, too. We did. That's right. Did we have Phil on twice? No. We've had Phil on twice. Just once. No? no? Just once. Just once. Okay. And today we're also joined by one of Phil's students, Ben Heaton. Ben, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I... Uh... Learned uh, meditation through Phil a few years ago, and uh, that's been a great thing in my life. I live in San Diego. I'm an active Latter-day Saint. I am a physician by trade. Um, have a uh, three kids. That's pretty much it. Well, welcome. Thanks for joining us. We wanted to talk about the Bhagavad Gita again. We recorded an episode. We called it Part One. This is Part Two, and we wanted to have you on, Phil, and you, Ben, to help us to talk about the Gita, not necessarily in a second half of the Gita. Riley and I covered the first half last time, but what we really did is we we talked about what the Gita is overall, and then we went into some of our commonplaces from the first half of it. And rather than just go through commonplaces for the second half, we thought we'd talk to you guys and get some more insights into the book and into the the practice that you've developed around the Gita. And I know, Ben, that you've, you know, this is something that to you relates to your temple worship and that's curious just to say that what what do you let's maybe start there what do you mean by that well um i'll start as a as a kid growing up in provo utah a conservative place but i did have uh grandparents who were more liberal thinking for me uh being a church member was about seeking truth that's what what we used to call mormonism was all about was seeking the truth that's what joseph smith tried to do so i've kind of always looked at it that way Rather than trying to protect something, I've been more open-minded and willing to see things. So in the last maybe 10 years or so, I actually became very interested in seeking knowledge in the temple, uh, went on a regular basis, became an ordinance worker, and it really just seemed to open things up for me. Um, and there's a, a saying, a Buddhist saying, that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I found that to be something true in my life. And just sort of listening to the spirit, I became, I, I started, you know, studying other things that I had heard about Phil McElbore. And when a opportunity came when he was teaching a meditation course, I took the opportunity to do that. But it was just interesting because as I learned more about these things and, and later studying the Bhagavad Gita, um, I was going to the temple every week, so I would sort of process the things I learned in the temple 
And there was a, a synergy developed there, and I, I really felt like God was opening pathways for me in my spiritual search. Um, the temple, to me, it, it teaches about sacred time and sacred space. And for me, rather than being an enclave where we separate ourselves from the world, uh, there's a beautiful scripture in Ezekiel 47 about the waters of the temple flowing outward. And I really see, for me, the temple experience is learning to see divinity in the world and, and learning to take what I have in the temple and apply it to other things rather than just hiding away in the temple. So, um, and I, it really has helped me to see, uh, you know, I traveled to India and, and been in Hindu temples and I can, it's helped me to see the divinity there. Uh, to me, it's not, uh, exclusivity is not, Something important to me, I always just want to find God wherever I can find him. And I think as we're talking about the Gita, we'll see that that's a, a very uh, central part of the Gita, is finding, finding truth everywhere. I love that beautiful image about the temple. Phil, is there anything you'd like to do in correcting me in, in my representation of you? Uh, no, I'm not sure you represented me, but... Uh, <laughs> I- <laughs> Who are you, Phil? Remind us. For, for, for those who haven't heard previous episodes we've had you on, or the, or the previous episode we've had you on. Yeah, real quick. I, I grew up Catholic and joined the, the LDS Church when I was 19, went on a mission from 21 to 23. 1921 to 1923? No, no, no. I was age 19. Oh, 22. my bad. Sorry. Yeah, uh, I, served, I apologize, Phil. So I served a mission from 71 to 73. When I was uh, tw- or 19 to 21, I'm sorry. And then I was recruited into the Seminary Institute program. I worked for 10 years uh, for the church educational system. I was the Institute Director at Auburn University in Alabama and the University of Georgia. And then I got recruited into the chaplain, active duty chaplain service representing the church for 21 years. And it was at toward the end of my military career that I was injured and uh, nothing was working for me. And I I got into meditation, yoga meditation, to manage chronic pain and stress. Uh, suddenly, a whole new spiritual world and dimension opened up to me. And so I began to very seriously study the, the teachings, practices, and principles of the meditation disciplines, but then centered in on the yoga tradition of meditation. And I was fortunate to study with uh, Deepak Chopra and then later with uh, um, a gentleman named Roy Eugene Davis, who was the last living direct guru disciple of the well-known Yogananda, who wrote the very uh, famous classic spiritual book, Autobiography of a Yogi. So I really have dual citizenship. I'm, I'm a member of the church. I'm also a representative of a particular Kriya Yoga tradition. And in the Kriya Yoga tradition, one of our standard works is the Bhagavad Gita. So I'm really, it's been a source of deep, extensive study and contemplation and for me. When did you first encounter the Gita, Phil? Um, I was studying meditation at the Chopra Center. I was also on track to, to, I was training to be one of his meditation instructors. And it was clear to me from Deepak that he considered the Gita and the Upanishads as major spiritual texts. So I went to the bookstore there and I bought the the edition of the Gita and the Upanishads that he had there. It's, it's actually Eknath Eswaran's translation, which I've come to love very deeply. And to be honest with you, I I tried to read it and it made no sense to me. 
um, unlike Western scriptures that are didactic and dualistic, the, the yoga scriptures are written from a realization of oneness. And my mind was so dualistic, I literally couldn't digest it. I couldn't comprehend what the Gita was about. It's much like certain key passages in John 17, you know, where Jesus talks about oneness in a very mystical way. But the yoga scriptures are all like that. And if you're not in that mindset, it's extremely difficult to digest. So anyway, I, you know, it's like knowing the words to a song, but you don't have the melody. I mean, it just, it, it's, it's not there. So I'm not exaggerating. I put them on a bookshelf realizing these aren't for me. It took me five years of meditating until there was really an inner transformation of mind and heart. And then the kind of the music of oneness is now in my soul. So one day, after about five years of meditation, I was walking by the bookshelf and I thought, well, let's give these guys a chance. And I pulled the Gita off the shelf and opened it. And all of a sudden, man, it was a book of light and life and joy and inspiration and revelation. I couldn't believe it. You know, I'd finally, I was finally prepared to be able to receive its, uh, its message. And uh, it just became a text of spiritual awakening, both uh, in words and in spirit. So from that point forward, it's been a, a, a subject of very serious study for me, and I have found it to be an ideal blend, really, of mystical philosophy and spiritual practice. You mentioned um, that you just didn't get it. And, you know, I was reading the Upanishads a, a little while ago, and in the preface, I, I took note of uh, one uh, suggestion where it said, whoever the translator was I, for this edition, I couldn't remember, but it said that you really need a guru. You really need someone to help to unlock the truth of this book for you. And you mentioned a couple of your mentors, but what was the thing that you were taught or that you learned in the process of working with these mentors that unlocked the Gita for you in a new way? Yeah, well, the guru teachers that I had, um, they were teaching and embodying the message of the Gita, the teaching of the Gita. I just wasn't ready at that point to digest it and assimilate it. It was just me. I just wasn't prepared. And uh, when that you know inner transformation took place, which meant I'm thinking differently, I'm perceiving differently, I'm interpreting differently, I'm seeing new things in an expanded way, uh, literally from one day to the next, opening that book, it was... It was like, now I'm prepared to receive this message and this understanding of oneness. But it was only because I had primarily learned to abide in oneness with God. So that's what opened it up for me. Without that, I, it made no sense to me. Now, just that's me. I have a friend, a very, a very good friend, who served in a state presidency in Florida. He does no meditation whatsoever. He just picked up the Gita one day and it was like, glory, hallelujah. He reads it, loves it quotes it, teaches from it, and he's had no meditation practice. So I, I don't know what to say. You know, rather your question reminded me of, you know, having read a lot of books and having, you know, worked now with a, you know, with a spiritual guide as a Sufi, I'd been told by those who had that kind of relationship, you know, with a guru or a guide that it's not in books, Chris, is what they would tell me. It's not in books. And yet, you know, we work with books just like, uh, Philip worked with the Gita, and yet it does take a guide sometimes to to be able to show us, not necessarily to explain the book, because if it could be if it could be answered in that way, then we could put that down in a book, 
Right. And so I'm curious, you know, what's been Ben's experience uh, working with his teacher, with Phil? Well, it's interesting. Um, I was on my mission in South Africa and there are a lot of Indians there and I actually came across the Gita on my mission and tried reading it. And it, it was just a, a totally different headspace being a Mormon missionary. You know, I read the first chapter and uh, I just couldn't really connect with it. But when, you know, I think when I was starting to learn uh, meditation and, and being in the temple uh, every week, I was really primed. So there's another translation I like uh, that I came across. It's called the Bhagavad Gita uh, Walkthrough for Westerners by Jack Hawley. And he sort of integrates uh, commentary in, so he kind of expands the story. He tells the, he gives the Gita, but kind of adds in explanations very seamlessly. And he, there's an audible version that has a little uh, faint uh, sitar drone in the background. And he actually, I think he was a businessman who lived, he, he would go to India six months of the year and study with Sai Baba, who is a well-known uh, Indian teacher. And uh, so it was a real labor of love for him. But I, I guess I kind of, listening to that, I really, you know, he's kind of like teaching the Gita as he's translating it. And so that made it very easy for me to understand. I would, I would recommend that. Uh, it's a very approachable uh, version um, and between that and just the discussions in our space group, group with Phil, uh, at that point it came came through very easily for me. One one quick note to mention: you mentioned the uh, Facebook group with Phil, and Phil, I don't know, is this something you want me to tell the audience about? Oh, that's fine. It's it's called Inner Path, and it's a fa- it originally was a Facebook group for people who had taken my online meditation course. So we would, they would follow up with questions and I could share more resources and so forth. And then friends began, they began inviting friends and other people wanted to, you know, either learn how to meditate or they wanted to uh, be in a community where there was a more maybe mystical inner spiritual approach to things. And so I just started allowing other people to come. Ben actually co-moderates that page with me. I, I really need the help and the wisdom. And so, yeah, you know, people are willing, are welcome to join. I actually have a video up now that uh, teaches basic meditation practice that they can watch and then just very easily integrate into the group. But um, my focus is primarily the, a mystical understanding of Jesus and the teachings and the mediation of Jesus. And then certainly uh, my understanding of the yoga tradition and then how those two are harmonious. So that's, that's emphasis. Phil, I'd like to ask you if you would define yoga. You know, we, you talked about yoga meditation. You talk about yoga practice. I, I know for a lot of Westerners, this means a form of exercise, right? Posing and uh, this kind of thing. Right. Oh, that's a good question. So yoga means, obviously, it means union with God. And yoga in the yoga scriptures means two things. It means the ultimate state of realization of oneness within in God, that ultimate state one is seeking. But it also means the path and the steps to that union with God. And so we, we call a lot of these intermediate steps or different traditions of yoga, uh, yoga also. Uh, this hatha yoga, which is the you know, the yoga of asana or position and posture and balance and so forth is, is really a very small aspect of the entire yoga tradition. In the end, yoga means deep 
inner communion with God and the steps and the path that leads to that deep inner union. I remember you telling us last time we talked uh, on the podcast that yoga, that the, the root of that word, it goes back to the same root as the word yoke, as in yoked with Christ. Yeah, so I told, I told my story, um, you know, after five or six years of meditation, I'd had so much spiritual growth I had never experienced before, it put me in an identity crisis. And I wasn't sure, who am I? You know, am, am I a Christian Mormon guy? Am I a yogi now? Who am I? What course am I going to take? It was a bit uh, uh, uncomfortable. And I was doing hospice work at the time, and I was reading John, John, I was reading Matthew 11, 28 to 30 to a hospice patient. And, you know, you're familiar with the, the verse, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Well, the second I read that from my yoga studies, I knew the word yoke came from the Sanskrit, Sanskrit word yug, from which we get the word yoga. So the word yoke and yoga are substantially equivalent. And in that second, all of my yoga training and experience and meditation practice suddenly merged with the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. It all became one thing to me in a, in a millisecond, in a flash. And suddenly... When that happened, I it was right after that I wrote this article called The Yoga of Christ that I'll, that I'll talk about in a little bit because it relates to my Gita study. And, well, heck, I'll talk about it now. I Soon after I had that experience where a deeper understanding of Jesus emerged within me and then became harmonious with my yoga practice in teaching and understanding, I was reading a verse in the Bhagavad Gita is chapter 6, which is the chapter on meditation, verse 35. And in that verse, Krishna says to Arjuna, it is true that the mind is restless and difficult to control or to hold steady or to still, but it can be conquered through meditation, meaning God, communion, and non-attachment. And so what Krishna is doing here is summarizing the spiritual path in a two-fold formula of communing with God and then practicing this thing called non-attachment, which is a bit tricky to understand properly and correctly. Um, it doesn't mean detaching from the world. It means detaching your, your sense of self from a false identity and then uh, finding a way to share that God communion with the world around you. So like Krishna teaches in the rest of the Bhagavad Gita, you don't withdraw from the world. You find your unity with God and then you engage from that unity into the world, and you do that that uh, that work. So it's important to realize the activity of the mind with which we identify tremendously overshadows our ability to perceive things spiritually. So one of the reasons meditations are a core, if not the core, spiritual practice is it stills the mind so you can become aware of that aspect in you that can discern spiritual reality. Well, once I realized that that the Gita summarized the spiritual path as God communion and non-attachment, two seconds later, it suddenly dawned on me, wait a minute, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. And so I went back through the Gospels and pulled out um, the evidence of Jesus uh, teaching and exemplifying God communion in meditation and the practice and principle of non-attachment. And I was stunned. I had no clue that Jesus so extensively taught the principle and practice of non-attachment as extensively as it's taught in the Gita. It was absolutely amazing to me. And if you read that article, I think you'll be 
amazed at how uh, much of Jesus' teaching is centered on that. And, and give us the name of that article, Phil. It's called The Yoga of Christ. And how would someone find that? Uh, boy, I think, if you, I think if you search, it'll be online. If you email me, I'll just email it to you, you know, a nice clean copy of it. Yeah, it's easy to find by just searching by the title of the article. It was in Sunstone, right? It was in Sunstone around 2007. So, but yeah, I, I can email a clean copy or I think most people can pop it up just searching for it. So that's when my yoga and Jesus world really came together when I saw this union of Gita and New Testament, Krishna and Jesus. It was very, very exciting. And my identity crisis was over, you see. Uh, I can be a Christian, right? And I can be a yogi. Yeah, you know, the the figure of Krishna is clearly a Christ-like figure, right? In in the Gita, you He's an avatar, we can say an incarnation of the high God of Vishnu. And so in that sense, like Jesus, an incarnation of God, I get that. Ben, I'm curious in your experience, you know, as a a practitioner of the Gita, how that dovetails with your Mormonism or with your Latter-day Saintism. Well, I think I'll give one example. Um, You guys, I thought, did did a great introduction of the Gita in your last episode. Um, I was just thinking today about... I see the Gita not as being sort of a book of aphorisms, but I really find, try to see core principles in it. I think there's core principles that just keep coming back. And so as I was looking at that, you know, to put in three words the what the Gita means, it says divinity permeates everything, and it tells us to see divinity everywhere. And, you know, as I started reading the scriptures, after I started you know, meditating and going to the temple and really looking deeper, a lot of the scriptures really opened up for me in ways that I hadn't seen before. And one of them was DNC section 88 about talking about Christ and the light of Christ. And I think the light of Christ is very underappreciated in in the church. Um, Somehow it's thought to be sort of a second, uh, a poor second cousin to the Holy Ghost. But, you know, the, the light of Christ, if you read, if you just actually read the words and, DNC 88, it's, it's Christ, you know, permeates everything He's in and through everything. And so that, you know, I started to see stuff like that. And that really made a lot of sense to me um, that, I mean, that's sort of saying the same thing that uh, the Gita is saying is, is right there in DNC 88. Yeah, we love that point of view. We did an episode on the Christ consciousness that very much tried to pull that same idea into our understanding practice and, and maybe kind of reintroduce it to the theology a little bit is that Christ obviously is is a, a savior. He's a uh, he's a God figure made uh, made incarnate. But there there's also something further that he's revealing to us through this spirit of Christ, or what we kind of referred to in that episode as the Christ consciousness. And 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 that is that as you said earlier, and I love this quote, these three words, divinity permeates everything. And that's something that Christ realized and that he wanted us to realize. And that was the, really the central focus of the great intercessory prayer, Phil, that you mentioned in John chapter 17, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, one point that I make in that article, The Yoga of Christ, is that Jesus, there's evidence that he was a master of each of the four yogas that are explained in the Bhagavad Gita. And one of those 
aspects of the of uh, path of yoga is this is the is bhakti yoga this yoga of devotion and love well what is the love it's it's a it's a sensing of it's a perception of the presence of god in and through all things and so when jesus you know talks about you know the lilies in the field and i mean he's he's describing the presence of god in and through all creation he's in touch with that he senses that he's trying to to uh, communicate that that god's not far away uh, god's within us right kingdom within but god is also among us he's in and through all things and jesus profoundly taught that model that experienced that and communicated that and again that's like ben said an absolute core message of the gita and i just wanted to add just briefly on the intercessory prayer you know it's saying that christ is praying that we can be one with the Father, but I think as you study this and the message of the Gita is we are, we are already one with the Father and on the deepest level and we need to, you know, understand and learn and, and realize that. And, and uh, I think if we look at it from that perspective, um, really beautiful thing and, and gives us an opening to expand our, our spiritual horizons. Yeah, Ben, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you're saying something like what we say often, which is that metaphysically, in reality, we are one with the Father. Epistemologically, maybe we're not aware of it. Right. It, it's so interesting. In uh, Yogananda's writings, who was Roy's direct guru, um, he often talked about the spiritual path and the spiritual search and seeking to find communion in God. Roy would always say, well, yeah, but that's not technically true. What's technically true is we are already one in God. But if you haven't realized that, then there's going to be a movement toward that. And so now we have the language of path. And you get, you know, you get yogis debating this all the time, how they're going to phrase that. Well, it's, it's, it's true based on the context of who you're talking to, right? So um, I have on the bottom of my meditation bench, I meditate on a little kneeling bench, and I have three quotes, actually four quotes engraved on the bottom of that bench. And the first quote is John uh, 10.30, where Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And so in the spirit of John 17, when I kneel down to meditate, I'm sitting on those words, right? I'm wanting to follow Jesus into that oneness that he realized and experienced in the Father. And then after that, I have uh, two uh, verses from the Gita. The first is 620, which says, in the still mind, in the depths of meditation, the self, or capital S, or the true nature, presence, and character of God reveals itself. So, you know, I'm abiding in meditation to experience, again, that oneness that Jesus is describing and mediating, so that that reality of the oneness within in God that's already fully present can reveal itself in me. And your divine nature is revealed along with that. And then the second Gita verse I have uh, engraved under my meditation bench is uh, chapter 410, verse 10, which is purified in the fire of my being. Many have reached that state of unity in me. So one of the things we're doing in meditation is opening ourselves to this inner sanctification, this inner purification that the scriptures talk about, and what's the end, you know, what's the end of that? 
the end of that is this state of unity with and in God. So anything psychologically, emotionally, physically, uh, that is a barrier to that oneness, the practice of meditation uh, purifies that, removes that, and brings forth the qualities of the divine nature. So I'll just kind of add on to that. And getting back into the Gita, so I think you talked about this in the first episode, but there's, and this is kind of a different language that it sounds kind of foreign, but once you learn it, it I think it relates to things within the Mormon pathway as well. But there's the idea of Brahman is, is pure consciousness, ultimate reality. It's sort of the God that permeates everything. Then there's the other term, Atma, which is the divinity within each of us. And these are actually the same thing. Um, I, I think of that as sort of a, a hologram or a fractal where, you know, you can, Brahman, you can, you can cut into little pieces and it's all the same. It's all the same thing. And so we have one of those little pieces within each of us. But I think it's also one thing I've learned to appreciate is, is paradox. And just because we have divinity within us doesn't mean we don't have to seek, we can't seek divinity in other places. Um, for example, I can have divinity within myself, but I can still pray to God at times. And another thing is, a big thing for me was understanding that each other person has this Atma, this divinity within them, which is the same divinity within me. And that really changed my relationship with other people as I look at them and realize that I am one with everybody on a very deep level. And uh, that's to me, was kind of a life-changing realization in understanding people and learning to see things through their eyes and, and realizing the connection I have with, with other people because we all share the same inner divinity. And that's one of the great lessons of the Gita for me. I think we can say that the, the Brahman and the Atman are different manifestations of the same essence. Would that be correct to say? I shared, you remind me of a story I shared before we recorded. I had no intention of sharing it on the podcast, but I think I will now. And that is the story of meditating in my sister's backyard as I'm visiting my sister. I went outside and sat to meditate and her dog started scratching at the door. My sister wasn't home or probably would have let her out. I had no idea whether the dog could or could not come outside. I mean, I just started. I guess I could have started over. But I just sat with the dog scratching at the door, and it really went on for 20 minutes. I had no way of knowing that would happen. Uh, and, and I just, it bugged me. It's one of the, it was one of those sounds that you have to put up with when you're meditating and learn to just, uh, you know, focus despite that sound on your meditation. And yet, you know, 20 minutes in, I just had this insight, and I just chuckled inside. I laughed within myself, as it were. And I said, I am the dog. Uh, I'm scratching at the door. And I realized that in the very next moment that that really was true, that I was the one who had gone outside and not let the dog out such that the dog would scratch. And the dog stopped at, at that time. And the last five minutes of my meditation were silent. Ben, I have a question. You know, I, I think sometimes I ask these questions. I think this has been addressed. It's not that it hasn't been addressed. But just to be clear, you know, just to go on record asking the question that the listener may have in, in her mind. And that is, when you say that that God is in everything, it, it can sound pantheistic and so somehow contrary to our own theology. How would you respond to someone who might think in that way about what you're saying? Well, I guess it can sound almost trite sometimes, too. Um, 
and you can say, well, God is everywhere and then go on to your next thing in your life, you know, and, and it can be an excuse to not think about things deeply. And I, I think, and I think Phil would agree with me here, it goes down to practices such as meditation where you learn to still the mind and it's something you you seek to experience rather on a deeper level than just saying that God is everywhere. You're trying to actually experience that as you still your mind in meditation. And for me, once I kind of learned to meditate, then I sort of started, started to apply that practice to my life and, and try to see life from a meditative point of view and observe the world kind of from this perspective. And, and that to me almost makes my life a meditation. Um, you learn to look at things from sort of a detached perspective, kind of a third person uh, perspective as, as an observer, uh, observing the world rather than just participating in it. And for me, when you do that, you know, you, you begin to actually experience and feel these things inside of you, um, feel the connection with other people and the connection with divinity. So you, you want to move it definitely toward an experiential rather than just a, a scholarly type approach. I heard you say, and, and I recognize the words, Christ is in and through all things. And somehow I think that relates to this idea of God permeating all things. In what way has, you know, has your study of the Gita or of, of this yoga, of, of the practice of yoga, informed your understanding of that saying, right? That quote, that Christ is in and through all things. Well, from my LDS background, um, and you know, we have covenants, and, and one is the baptismal covenant to take upon us the name of Christ, and that's something still very important to me. And you know, seeing the scripture in the DNC eighty eight about Christ permeating all things, that this to me falls into line with my baptismal covenants. But then you sort of learn that there's other cultures have different languages for the same thing, and the more you study these things there's this thing called the perennial philosophy where these truths from the light of christ they just permeate all reality and they start popping out in all kinds of different places and once you kind of learn that and, and understand that then you can start seeing that and being aware of that and, and that opens you up to understanding other people instead of being well, I'm just uh, uh, you know an lds church member and this is the only truth uh, you start seeing truth other places are, are not only confirming what you may believe in the LDS pathway but helping to expand it and see greater depth in it and to me it's just a I mean if you're a spiritual seeker which we should be as, as Latter-day Saints this is a really untapped well of knowledge and wisdom in the world and you, you go to Second uh, Nephi 29 and you see that God speaks to you know, all people, all nations in the north, south, east, and west. Um, there's really a untapped source of, of wisdom, I think, that's available to us if we're, if we're open to it. Yeah. Um, Mormon teaching and Mormon thinking tip, typically is very heavily dualistic. And that was my problem trying to understand the teachings of the Gita with this mystical language of God's in me and I'm in God and I'm in him and you're in the dog scratching at the door. And I mean, it, it just seemed too airy fairy for me. I couldn't quite make sense out of it. But then, you know, here's Jesus in John 6:56. He, he who eats my flesh 
and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And Paul, through his epistles, used that phrase in Christ, you know, being in Christ like 160 times. So this mystical language of oneness that's very difficult to comprehend just by thinking, trying to think about it or explain it, uh, just isn't in the Gita. It's in the New Testament, you know. It's in the teachings of Jesus. It's in the teachings of Paul. And when we see that depth in Jesus' teachings, when we see that depth in the New Testament, wow, it's just a, it, it's a, it's a glorious revelation, and it's a bringing into oneness of these, the deepest teachings in all of these scriptures, East and West. So I was reading, um, I'm reading, rereading Sacred and Profane by Mircea Eliade right now, and I was talking to my wife about how excited I get when something that is either secular or from another faith kind of confirms my Christian faith. And there was this, of course, the, the subject matter of that book is, is sacred space and sacred time. And actually, Ben, you, had, you mentioned this exact phrase earlier in the show, um, in the recording here. You said that the temple to you represented sacred time and sacred space. And that's what related or had you interested in uh, the Gita as, as kind of a mode of study. And I, I wanted to follow up on that and uh, kind of get back into the Gita a little bit. What is it about the Gita to you that represents sacred time and sacred space? Because there's the setting itself is a battlefield. And we talked about this on the last episode, Chris and I, about how that's obviously some, it's metaphorical. But what, is it, what does it mean to you? What is it about the Gita that, that represents sacred time and sacred space? So I have to think about how to answer that. Um, I thought the main correlation, I, I think, with sacred time and space, sacred space, for me, was the uh, as I learn in the temple, you're you're setting time aside for God, and you're in a holy place. And then, to me, outside outside the temple, then I could learn to see if I'm in, say, a, a Hindu temple or a Catholic cathedral. I recognize that as sacred space, like I did when I was in the LDS temple, and and then sacred time. Um, so we in the LDS culture we have the Sabbath day, but I started. I was going to the temple on Tuesdays, and I began to realize, you know, Tuesday is actually my more sacred day than Sunday is, you know, because this is the day I go, you know, I really go in depth in a, in a deeper way, and so it began, you know, it began to realize that there's nothing. It's not just the Sabbath day that we can have sacred, sacred time can be other times of the day too. And I think that's what the Sabbath is really trying to teach us is, is that there is, we need to have sacred time in our life. So Ben, to follow up on, on your point here, you, you talked about how, you know, no matter where you are, you can, you can create sacred space or be enveloped in sacred space. And this is a very relatable concept for me. I, you know, when I, I, I travel quite a bit and I've been in some really cool places um, and a, a few of those places, I felt the sacredness of that moment. Um, I, I've been in Iguazu Falls at sunrise and seen a hundred rainbows as one of the largest waterfalls in the world tumbles over a cliff and there's just a mist of rainbows. It's incredible. And then I've been in Machu Picchu at the top of this mountain and seen these ruins and wine a picture in the background and was there at 5.30 in the morning as the mist burned off. And 
that felt sacred to me. St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. I don't know how you could walk into that space the way it's designed and not feel just that spark of divinity, you know, lighten you up. It's incredible. I remember walking in at one point and you've got St. Peter's chair right there and and there was a beam of light that was coming through the the cathedral right to the chair and and it just for some reason it really struck me as um sacred and so i think this is relatable for a lot of people to be in these places in different contexts outside of our own faith tradition outside of a temple or outside of a chapel or even outside of our home and feeling the sacredness of the moment and and being able to interpret from that moment that divinity is in and through all things and that it's just a matter of realization yeah so um i think that was directed to me but um so i yeah i I think it teaches you sacred time sacred space sacred word as well you learn scripture and so you learn to find um you know scriptures in other places um that are also you find the divine, but again, it gets back to this Atma and this idea that God permeates everything, and it really opens up a whole new world of spirituality where you can, like you said, go to these different places, and even and then it goes back to the mundane. Now you're going to work, you're going to the store to buy groceries. You know, you're you you can take that idea of sacred space and turn it into your whole life, or at least that's the I think that's the Gita is trying to tell us to do is to see divinity everywhere in the mundane as well as the, uh, you know, the, uh, the special isolated places or the uh, spiritual places. So it's helping. And sometimes that's the more, even the greater practice is to adopt these into our life and, and see divinity in every person and, and every uh, thing that we do. Just a follow-up on sacred time. Uh, the paradox here is we set aside time, so many minutes, to really experience the timeless. The whole idea of sacred time is to use a space of time to um, for us to be able to, within which we experience the timeless, the timeless presence and nature of God. Of course, there's that wonderful verse, um, I believe in Hebrews, you know, uh, about, uh, well, it just slipped my mind. Uh, know you not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you, right? So I love sacred spaces. Uh, ben and I have been on retreat together at the Center for Spiritual Awareness and that meditation hall there is my most sacred space because it's in that hall that I have had this experience of the temple within. That sacred space revealed that within me, there is the living temple of God's presence. So I love this combination of literally a sacred space in time and space that actually reveals the timeless and the eternal and the divine within me. So I I love all of these concepts, ideas. So just a quick um, reference to the Gita in the Cosmic Vision, um, chapter 11, among other things, uh, Krishna says, I am time. And we're kind of taking that out of context of the whole story, but it's interesting that, you know, he exists out of time, but he's saying, I am, I am time also. And this, it's this paradox. There's so many paradoxes here. Uh, the deeper you go into truth, the more paradox and ambiguity you encounter. And you, you have to 
enter paradox to really understand things on the deepest level that uh, you know God in he, he exists outside of time but yet includes all time as well. Isn't that the verse that deals with? Isn't it the same verse that's translated uh, where time? Where you're, what you're saying is time is translated death. I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Um, I believe that might be in the same verse. Verse thirty-two. I have in that's my the, notes here, and uh, that's the famous verse as translated by Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah. So I want to dive into just a little bit of how how to approach this book for someone who is new to it and the realizations that they have to have on the front end before they tackle it so that they don't put it on the shelf for five years as Phil did earlier, what would be the, the, the top things that you would bring to someone's attention about the Gita that will help them get into this, this work of scripture for the first time? Well, I, one reason I like the Eknath Eswaran uh, translation is he has an extensive introduction of yoga philosophy, Gita teaching, and terminology. And so without that background, that foundational background, it really is hard to understand some of this teaching. So he puts all of that in context, and then each chapter has a, a little introduction that's going to preview the chapter and again uh, lay out the core teachings and so forth. That makes it really really helpful yeah so i mean to me it gets down to desire you know i think sometimes in the church you can go through the routine if you got you know what are we studying this year oh we're doing the old testament this year and so you get out your manual and you go through um to me you it, you know it's, it's a matter of a desire seeking deeper wisdom like how badly do i want to understand something you know do i want to try to push by just the standard stuff we say all the time and find deeper wisdom. Um, to me, the desire and willingness to to look beyond just what's in front of me and, and, and seek something deeper. And again, I know uh, I also appreciate the SWR and translation. It's again, as I mentioned before, the Jack Hawley translation, which incorporates, it's called a walkthrough for Westerners. So it actually is kind of tailored for Westerners where he kind of explains the terms within the, the text of the Gita, that was very approachable for me, and I really fell in love with the audible version of that. So uh, for me, I guess, yeah, just seeking, and then that's a, if somebody wants to get into the Gita, they should, you know, take a look at both of them and just see which one speaks to you the most. I can endorse both of those uh, translations too, and maybe there are a couple of others I could mention or include in the show notes, but you know, another thing to, to point out to those who haven't read the Gita is that this is something you can read in a few hours. And one of the reasons it's one of my favorite books in general, and one of my favorite sacred texts, is that it does have this narrative that I can that I can really take in the whole arc of the narrative in just a few hours. I can read this book in an afternoon. And I do, and I read it, you know, sometimes half a dozen times every year. Yeah, one thing, Ben, you mentioned earlier was that after the first chapter, we, we sort of get away from all the war talk. I mean, it's it's always there as a background in terms of the language that's used. But what what really starts to happen is this lament of Arjuna as he's speaking with Krishna and trying to understand what his dharma is. 
And so what is it about the way the Gita progresses that helps us understand this yogic tradition? So I think it's a real paradox. It's just interesting as you're reading the story, you're thinking, okay, so it's interesting that Krishna and Arjuna are on the battlefield and Arjuna he sees his brothers and uncles and teachers and on the other side and he says I don't want to fight this great warrior suddenly loses his taste for battle and then but, but then we think well he's you know this is the moral of the story he's a great pacifist but then Krishna says no this is your dharma that you're a, a kshatriya warrior and you need to fight for the right and then that kind of leads into the whole rest of the, the Gita where he he's saying you think you're killing them but you can't really kill them because you can't kill the the essence of them and then that sort of leads into the, the teachings from there. But doesn't it seem like there's an ascension that's going on? Like the, the initial chapters are, and, and we talked a little bit about this on the last uh, episode that we did on it, was he's, he's laying out the foundation for ultimately what this grand transformation of the soul is for Arjuna down the road. And it's really the the whole, it seems to me, and I don't know as much as you gentlemen do about this tradition, but it seems to me the, that the yogic tradition is, is sort of outlined here or, or the pathway, let's put it the pathway is a better way to say that. And so he goes from saying, okay, these are the basic doctrines and this is the work that's expected of you and you have to gain this knowledge and so forth. But then by the end of this very short work of, of scripture, this sacred work, is he's talking about renunciation and, and he's he's getting into the differences in faith and it, it becomes uh much more nuanced and uh for for more experienced pra- practitioner possibly. Well I'll just I'll I'll make a few more uh, comments and then maybe Phil can add on to that. You know, to me, I just get into the first, uh, you know, the second, third, and fourth chapter, and just again, I it becomes very simple for me that that God permeates everything, and uh, and then start talking about non-attachment and not how we should work in the world without being attached to the results of our or the fruits of our labors, and to me, those are the big the big things. I mean, you can spend your whole life just working on that. And to me, the rest of the Gita. You know, it kind of expands on that, but oftentimes I just get to those first few chapters and I almost want to, want to stop and say, well, this is something, you know, this is plenty for me to work on right here. So I think the biggest, to me, rather than building it, actually, the big messages come up front and then it just kind of expounds on the rest of the time, but maybe still can add more about that. Yeah, this, first of all, this idea of Dharma is so significant. Dharma means about 50 different things. And you need a whole lot of different words to describe what Dharma is. But it's, it's divine will, purpose, um, intent, being. I mean, it means a whole lot of different things. But there's two Dharmas, and there's two Dharmas that are being worked out in Arjuna throughout the Gita. The first Dharma is... Is, is simply the dharma that everybody faces of, of learning how to become one with the will, the purpose, the movement, the flow of God. Each of us have that dharma to figure out where we fit in, in all of this 
and how I can live in harmony with the will, purpose, love, nature, grace of God. That's for all of us. But then there's a personal dharma. In addition to this general dharma that we all seek to become one with or to live in harmony with, then there's the dharma of what's Ben going to do and what's Riley going to do and what's little Phil going to do in this life. Uh, how is the, the universal dharma going to be expressed through the, the individual life of each person and their individual circumstances and so forth. And at the end of the Gita, you see this progression through the Gita within Arjuna. First Arjuna, it finally, it's finally revealed to him what the universal Dharma is in God, right? The, the ultimate mega divine purpose and will of God. And then by the end, it's, ah, now that I have that, I know how I fit into this. Now I'm at peace, you see. Now I know what to do and how to live and uh, where to uh, uh, struggle, so to speak. So to me, the, the um, evolution or the progress through the Gita is the understanding of Dharma universal, which then gives the key to understanding of the personal Dharma. One other thing I just wanted to add, and this is one of the, another paradox, and so we look at it from kind of the Buddhist perspective, it, it, it almost acts like, you know, we're, we need to get out of this life. What they're saying, and you read that in the Gita, how you can, seeking God, you can, and, and of course they, you know, they subscribe to reincarnation saying if you can seek God, you can avoid rebirth. And that seems to be the, uh, you know, the ultimate end of things. And, I kind of had a problem with that in Buddhism because it seems like there's, well, like, what's the purpose of life? You know, why to be here is our only purpose is to get out of this life. That just never really made sense to me. And to me, actually, you know, the LDS perspective really has a lot to offer because it talks about a, a pre-existence and a, and a purpose in life. And, and, uh, I, I actually think that the LDS perspective has a lot to offer that we have a purpose here it really teaches us we have a purpose in life and uh and i think the in the gita you know the dharma of of uh, arjuna obviously he um he has a purpose in life as a warrior but so we each have you know we want to see god but we also uh, and we also want to find our purpose in life and and what we you know decide what we need to do in this life on the wall of my study hangs a it's an Egyptian papyrus. It was a gift from an uh, Egyptian friend. And it's the image of an Egyptian charioteer. But whenever I see it, I think of Arjuna. Arjuna is taking uh, as his charioteer into battle Krishna, again, an incarnation of Vishnu, and in some sense, a Christ-like figure. And on the other side, the, the other side chose to have an army. But what Arjuna has with him is not an army, not the hosts of heaven, so to speak, but rather the king of kings. Right? He has with him Krishna himself as his charioteer and counselor. I've heard even Will Smith and Jay Shetty talking about this. You, know, you're, you have God as your charioteer, is how Will Smith put, puts it. And so that, that image really uh, speaks to me in a sense, you know, that, that you can have this kind of counsel, this kind of you know, to put you in, in, in touch with your, with your duty, right, with your dharma, with your purpose, 
this is something where everyone's seeking nowadays for their purpose. You hear a lot about that. What's my purpose in life? Right? People are asking this question. And I think this is a text that can help guide you to that. And again, having a teacher too, someone who can guide you through the text into the, the answer to that question. That's very personal. It's really a matter of getting to know yourself, right? That that true self that we speak of with the capital S, the 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 you, the Atman that is you, that it's a that is a manifestation of the divine Brahman. You know, there's there's an awesome episode of I be, I believe it's on the Robcast with with Rob Bell, where he talks about chariots. I'm pretty sure this is where I heard it was from Rob Bell. But he talks about the the significance of chariots in the Old Testament and how often they they pop up and when they pop up and why they're significant. And, you know, I'm interested in them as well. And and it's interesting to me, especially this connection, like Elijah taking a chariot of of flames into heaven. And then you look at you look at uh, Krishna leading this chariot of Arjuna into battle and it's pulled by five horses. And they're both these amazing, like symbolic representations of that, of that discovery of your duty of this is, you know, we're fighting this battle of life. We're going into this battle together. It's me, Arjuna, and it's Krishna, or it's, it's me and God going into this battle together. And we're going to figure this out together. And what are the tools for that? Well, I've given you this body and, and you can use this body to try to figure out what your what your purpose in life is. And, you know, these, he's pulled by these five, these five horses that some have said represent the five senses. And you're, so you go into this world, experiencing the world and trying to figure things out. It's just great imagery. And I I love that as well, Chris. I think that's an awesome uh, passage to pull out of the Gita. Yeah. And, you know, now that you put it that way, it reminds me of the same image in Plato, right? In the, the, um, the allegory of the, charioteer where you have or the chariot allegory where you have the two horses that represent you know the charioteer represents intellect or reason or the part of the soul that that has to guide the soul to truth one horse represents a rational or moral impulse or a positive part of passionate nature uh, like righteous indignation and the other one represents the soul's irrational passions or appetites or concupiscence and so the charioteer has to direct the entire chariot or the soul trying to stop the horses from going different ways. Guys, is there uh, favorite passages from the Gita that you would like to share with the audience as we come to a close of this episode? Well, I'll mention a couple of things. We talked a little bit about uh, chapter 11, the cosmic vision. I think it's always fun in the scriptures when you read uh, you know, a vision of God, and this is a, a very extant, expansive vision. Um, I'm just going to read verses uh, 12 and 13 in the Eshwaran. Um, translation it says, if a thousand suns were to rise in the heavens at the same time, the blaze of their light would resemble the splendor of that supreme spirit that, that uh, Arjuna is seeing here in the vision. There within the body of the God of gods, Arjuna saw the manifold forms of the universe united as one. Filled with amazement, his hair standing on end, in ecstasy, he bowed before the Lord with joined palms, and um, and then he gives more of a description. So it, I can't really, uh, you know, you should always just read this for yourself because it's, uh, you know, we can't read the whole chapter here, but it, it's a, chapter 11 is a great thing to read. 
Um, back in chapter 9, this and this goes again back to me, the big thing about the Gita is just seeing God in everything, uh, divinity in everything. Um, he's talking about the path of the jnana, um, spiritual wisdom uh, of the yogis that follow that. He says, they see that where there is one, that one is me. Where there are many, all are me. They see my face everywhere. I am the ritual and the sacrifice. I am the offering and the fire which consumes it, and the one who to whom it is offered. So he's saying, I am I am the sacrifice, I am the fire, I am the sacrifice thrown into the fire, I am the one you are sacrificing to. Um that it just um is interesting how it really makes the point that God is is everywhere. He's he's every perspective, every perspective in the world is God because God is within each one of us and God is within each action that we that we do. And then just one more thing, this is in chapter 13, uh, verse 28. He says, seeing the same Lord everywhere, they do not harm they do not harm themselves or others, thus they attain the supreme goal. So again, seeing God in everyone, if we, you know, you walk, you know, the rest of your day today as you're going to the store or going to work, you know, everyone around you has divinity in them. And, you know, it's one thing to say, well, God's everywhere, but when you really buy into it and start trying to experience it and live your life with that and trying to look for it, then it begins to unfold to you. And, and you do start seeing divinity everywhere and, and it changes the relationship with people, both, your loved ones close to you as well as just the average person that you see and it, it's just a beautiful thing it's it's um it's it's uh it's what i think what we're all searching for in life you know to see just the it's just such a great beauty in life to see the divinity everywhere god is the meditator and the dog scratching at the door or god is in the meditator and in the dog scratching at the door and it's worth repeating this quote from c.s lewis i've read this on the podcast before there are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Phil, what, what uh, thoughts did you have on, on a passage? Uh... Yeah, I, um, I just want to share um, briefly my perspective of the Gita, and then I'll share a favorite verse. Uh, one thing that that can one way the Gita is often portrayed as a portrayal of four the four major yogas or four classic yogas. So you've got Bhakti Yoga, the yoga of devotion. You've got uh, Karma Yoga, the yoga of selfless service. You've got Jnana Yoga, the yoga of discrimination and wisdom and learning and so forth. And then Raj Yoga, the yoga of meditation. So a lot of people think, oh gee, I got to find out which one of these is best for me, and then follow that path. And as I read the Gita, I've come to the conclusion that no, meditation is the foundational yoga. I don't know very well. Meditation is the foundational yoga, period. And there's a verse 640 where it just says meditation is superior to asceticism, to the path of knowledge, to the path of selfless service. 
So that is clear in the teaching. It gets confusing because when each of the different yogas is explained, it's made to look like it's the best and the only one. <laughs> so people can get a little confused there. So my point of view is this. Look, when I met Deepak Chopra, he's, he identifies himself as a wisdom yogi. He loves to learn. He loves science. Um, he hangs out with Nobel laureates and gets all their best thoughts and so forth. But he has a karma yoga practice. He has a deep meditation practice. Um, he has a, a, a very deep devotional practice, but it's in a little different balance than maybe another person, right? One person will favor maybe devotion or selfless service over another. But I, what I've discovered is without the foundation of meditation, meaning communion with God in which there's inner transformation and the purification of mind and heart, karma yoga karma yoga becomes difficult to sustain. It's difficult to sustain selfless service without that foundation of God communion. Bhakti yoga tends to move toward emotionalism. Um, and that gets way, way out of balance. And jnana yoga tends toward intellectualism. And so those, those yogas get undermined without the foundation of, of meditation. Now, interestingly, I find that meditation works best when the core principles of karma and jnana yoga and... Um, what am I forgetting? Bhakti yoga are present in your meditation. But in the end, when a person is established in God communion, karma yoga becomes joyful. Bhakti yoga leads to oneness with God and life all around you. And jnana yoga, wisdom yoga, uh, evolves into the deepest wisdom. So that's my basic view on, I think, what the Gita is trying to communicate in terms of the yogas that lead to yoga or that ultimate uh, union or oneness with with uh, in, within in God. My uh, last thing here, I have so many favorite verses, but I'm going to share chapter 9, verse 29. It's one I love a lot. Krishna says, I look upon all creatures equally. None are less dear to me and none are more dear. But those who worship me with love live in me and I come to life in them. I love that. I come to life in them. And that's what our experience ought to be in the yogas we practice. We ought to feel God coming to life in us. And if God is alive in us, wow, can we bless others. Awake and arise. I love that uh, scripture that Jesus says where, where he says, come unto me and I will come unto you. And it sounds very similar to that. It's almost like if you, you will pull that door open as I'm knocking, that's I'll enter, you know, into that, whether you call it the secret closet or into the into that space in your heart. But we, we come unto him and he comes unto us. Yeah. And I'm back to John six. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Wow. Well, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show with us, Phil McLemore, Ben Heaton, Riley, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And if there's nothing any of you would like to add, would you like to add anything in closing? Then I will sign off for Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Have a great week. Thank you.